The GabFest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash GabFest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 13th, 2014, the Between Two Ferns edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate, and I'm in New York, Slate's capacious New York studio. In fact, we're all in New York. It's exciting. John Dickerson is here for reasons unknown. Emily Bazelon is down from New Haven, Slate senior editor. This is so great. Hello. It's like, it's like a live Gab Fest, but with a really bad audience. There's no audience. <laughs> we have no audience except Chris Wade off there. There's a treat in the iTunes store this week. Did anyone? Did you guys see this? We have no. a new image of our show. It's oh, no longer the illustration. They it's were a photographed. <laughs> it's a photograph of us looking um, tough but fun. Oh, tough geez. but tough but fair. Not well, fair, but fun. I've got my arms crossed. I'm not sure if Emily has her arms crossed. You you look nice, John. Is it one of the pictures we took last week? Yeah, although it's oh. an amalgam of them. There was a big debate about your hair clips, Emily. I your hair clips it, it, it turned out to be distracting. A problem because they were so bright pink. I'm not sure if that's what it was, but they were distracting, so I think they found one without the hair clips. Her, you Let, mean her barrettes? Yes. Oh, okay. Let us know. Sure, Let us know whether her, her hair clips were distracting or wonderful. <laughs> On this week's show, the remarkable showdown between the Senate, in particular Senator Dianne Feinstein, and the CIA over whether each of them is spying on the other, in particular whether the CIA has been spying on Senate staffers. Then Republicans win a special election in Florida for a House seat. That was a seat Democrats thought they had in the bag. Does this herald, is this an omen of a Democratic disaster in November? And then President Obama does a star turn on the Zach Galifianakis show, 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 internet show. Show, 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 show. show, show, uh, show between show, two ferns in, show, to, to shill for healthcare.gov. Triumph or embarrassment for the presidency, we will decide. And we will have cocktail chatter, of course. We want to let you know, before we get started, about a new politics podcast from Slate. Did you guys know this? That Dave Weigel, starting this Sunday, our colleague Dave Weigel, the excellent Dave Weigel, is doing an interview podcast called Weigelcast. He'll be talking with some of the most interesting politicians and policymakers out there. He's going to start with the always fascinating Howard Dean. We're going to check Howard Dean's levels so he won't yell. If he does yell, it'll be okay. Your ears will be fine. They talk about a wide range of topics, including Edward Snowden, same-sex marriage, and a lot more. You can find Weigelcast starting this Sunday in the Slate Daily Podcast or by searching for Weigelcast in your favorite podcast app. Weigelcast, W-E-I-G-E-L-C-A-S-T. It's going to be good. Weigel is such a delightful character. And he's he a great interviewer, so it's going to be fun. A dramatic constitutional storm is gathering in Washington. Senator Dianne Feinstein, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, has accused the CIA of spying on Senate staffers who are investigating CIA's interrogation policies. The implications of Feinstein's accusations are enormous, as we're going to discuss. The CIA is barred from domestic intelligence gathering. It appears to be collecting information domestically. It also appears to be undercutting an investigation by the legislative branch, which potentially undermines the very foundation of separation of powers. It's a complicated story. It's not just Feinstein's side. The CIA has a very different view of what's going on. Let's begin. John Dickerson, you wrote about this this week with trying to explain the background and the charges and countercharges at work here. Emily, interrupt as needed Yeah, with please, some legal mumbo jumbo. Please do. It's, what's great about this story is that it's accusations of criminal activity. It's not just a tussle between two branches of government as the founders predicted over 200 years ago. What you essentially have happening is the Senate Intelligence Committee since 2006 has been looking into the um, interrogation techniques that were a part of the response to 9-11. That interrogation program started in 2002. The intelligence Committee didn't find out about it in 2000, until 2006. So as we talk about this, the key thing to remember is that the Intelligence Committee is the one that's supposed to oversee all of these secret activities, not just by the CIA, but by the NSA. And so that is important here, and we'll talk about that later. Anyway, in 2006, they start to investigate these interrogation techniques. By 2009, they have a preliminary report, which turns out that the interrogation techniques are far more vast and, and worrisome than they ever knew. And we're basically talking about Bush-era torture. Bush-era torture. Here. Exactly. Waterboarding. Rendition 2, is that a part of this, right? Okay. So 
what happens then in 2009 is the Intelligence Committee lo- launches yet another full investigation, that, and it takes place at this offsite, a CIA offsite in which a network is set up separate and apart from the CIA on which investigators are supposed to do their work, and they get 6.2 million pieces of documentation from the CIA. Now, according to Senator Feinstein, who gave a TikTok of this whole saga on the floor of the Senate, which was kind of extraordinary. And what's most extraordinary, of course, are her accusations at the end of it. But she went to explain the whole thing. So we're in the 2009 period, 2010 period. They start to investigate on this network at this offsite. And they are going through all these documents. According to Senator Feinstein, the CIA is not helpful at all. They require each document to no be— No search tool at first. It's like a huge document dump of right. the kind that really blocks people from— seeing if there's this needle in the haystack. And anything that they look at in the documentation must be kind of scrubbed a couple of times by various people at the CIA to make sure that it doesn't give away sources and methods before they can even look at it to make an assessment. Included in this document dump is something called the Panetta Review, named after then-CIA Director Leon Panetta. That review is essentially the the Cliff Notes version of the 6.2 million pages of documentation to the director, and it is scathing and incredibly damning of the CIA's work. Right. It's not just a summary. It sounds like it has a lot of analysis and judgment along the way, and it makes the kind of accusations and indictments of what the CIA was doing, which the Senate Intelligence Committee then picked up on, and so they were actually consistent with each other. And let's be specific about that. what that is. So the accusations are both of the nature of what is it that the CIA did. So what is the nature of the interrogation policies and torture it's carried out? And then most importantly, was this effective? What did this lead to useful intelligence? So those are the two things that are at issue. Super important. That's exactly right. That's what's being investigated while all this other shenanigans is going on. And that's exactly right. So in 2010, the, the investigators for the Senate start to notice that stuff starts to disappear from their their network. Now, there are all kinds of special arrangements that have been that have taken place between the Senate investigators and the CIA on how to handle information. And there's only supposed to be CIA sort of IT department have access to this network. So the fact that stuff starts di- disappearing is worrisome because it suggests that analysts at the CIA or somebody outside of the IT department is monkeying with it. Feinstein goes to the CIA. They blame it on some contractors. Then they say the White House said that they should do this. The White House, of course, says, no, we didn't. She gets it straightened out. In 2012, they release a 6,200-page, 6,300-page summary of the work that the investigators have done. The into, they don't release it. They don't no, no, it I'm sorry. The I'm sorry. They, they write they, it. They, they write it up, and, and it's, it's secret. secret. The CIA then responds with 122 pages that was released in January of this year. and Also was, not released. And also not released. The CIA agrees with some of what the investigators, but also disagrees with great chunks of it. What shocks them is that it totally contradicts the so-called Panetta Review. So the review that the CIA, secret review the CIA wrote for the director, is much harsher about what the CIA was doing than this 122-page thing, which is written, even though it's secret now, there is a lot of discussion about making it public. So it's written with an eye to being made public. At this point, the Senate investigators say, well, this is crazy. Your official response is very different than the Panetta Review. And they get worried because the Panetta Review, while they were finishing up their report, has disappeared from the network. So this is now the second instance where there's been some monkeying on going on with what's on the network. Fortunately for investigators, by the way they see it, they've printed out the Panetta Review because they've been given clearance to print out some things that they think are particularly important. The rub is they're not allowed to take it from the secret CIA location back to the Hart Senate office building. Or if they're going to do that, they have to run it by the CIA scrubbers and and the CIA folks have to say it's okay to do this. In this case, they don't because they're worried because stuff's been disappearing off the network and because the CIA destroyed tapes of this waterboarding going on, that this is the kind of evidence the CIA is trying to destroy. So they sneak it out, take it to the Hart Senate office building, put it in a safe where it now sits. When Feinstein and the other investigators read the 122-page response from the CIA, they say, can we get the official Panetta report because we see... So she's now asking for it officially. And the CIA says, no, this is secret. And the CIA, and now I'm coming to the conclusion here, the CIA says, wait a minute, how do you have the Panetta documents? How do you even know to ask for it? Yeah, how do you know to ask for it? You never should have had it. Based on the fact they took the Panetta report, which they were never supposed to have, and took it to the Hart Senate office building off-site, the CIA then uses this as a pretext to then go into their computers... This according to Senator Feinstein, but she said she was told by CIA Director John Brennan that they did this. They go into the computers to see what else they may have taken, thus investigating the investigators, which then caused her, Senator Feinstein, to go nuts. 
Then, final stage of this, the inspector general of the CIA looks into this, says there's enough here to uh, go make a referral to the Department of Justice to look into these CIA guys who broke into the computer system of the Senate investigators. Well, plus, though, meanwhile, the CIA is also trying to open a criminal investigation into this act of removing the Panetta Review and taking it out of the CIA network. Meanwhile, the acting CIA general counsel launches this criminal investigation with the Justice Department and Senator Feinstein on the Senate floor. So she's accused them of hacking into their stuff stealing documents, and now accuses the acting general counsel of the CIA of launching that criminal investigation because his name is in the torture report report 1,600 times. So in other words, he's trying to stonewall this because he thinks he's personally, because he's personally implicated in those things David so rightly brought up before, which is, did they break the law and was the, any of this torture worth it? It is like, and it's a massive fight between two branches of government. So here's what I keep coming back to in this. How is it possible to sympathize with the CIA here? Because what they're trying to prevent is the Senate Intelligence Committee, their oversight body, from having access to an internal review they wrote themselves assessing the legality and the circumstances of this tour. I just... We've had such an era of lack of transparency. The only kind of fig leaf we have are these congressional oversight committees. And here we have the agency that should be investigated, essentially blocking access, using these intimidating tactics to, you know, get the investigators in trouble. It is so unappealing if you're a citizen trying to see how the branches can possibly be providing enough of a watchdog role here over the spies. Right. No, it's I mean, it's obvious. Obviously indefensible what they're doing. I think to give them their due, I think what they fear happening is that this report is public, the word gets out, and that CIA officials who are doing their job as ordered yes. by the executive branch, as ordered by the president, are going to be hung out to dry and punished for doing what they were told to do and what, what the government told them was legal at the time. And we've and, always had this hanging over, they have had this hanging over their heads, right? I mean, there's a moment capturing this in the movie Zero Dark Thirty where it's basically like, who is going to be left holding the dog collar? I'm pretty sure that's the line from the movie. And that agents who were on the front lines, who, as you were saying, were acting according to the orders of their supervisors and under what they thought was legal permission. And in fact, it's true because the Justice Department, thanks to John Yoo, then of the Office of Legal Counsel, had given permission for these activities. That part of it, the prosecuting part, does seem unfair and problematic to me, but that doesn't mean we can't find out what happened. Right, and it also certainly doesn't justify them subverting another branch of government in the course of doing it. Emily, I have a constitutional question here, which is we have a standoff between these two bodies, and the Department of Justice has now been dragooned into it, but the Department of Justice is essentially like a sister of the The CIA. CIA, Part of the executive branch. So how do conflicts like this get worked out. I mean, usually, I guess you just negotiate it out and everyone backs off. Well, that's right. Usually, there's this unwritten set of rules that govern how congressional oversight committees deal with these sensitive executive branch matters. There's a sort of two-step. And one of the ironies to me here is the role of Diane Feinstein here. She has been the biggest enabler of our spies, the NSA, the CIA, of anyone in the Senate. I mean, I have just been so disgusted by the degree to which she has been an apologist for the overreaching of the NSA and the CIA. So to have her upset really demonstrates that things are out of control here. And you have this feeling if she couldn't figure out how to work with John Brennan, who she has, you know, when she has been so cozied up to this agency, then no one could have. And we really do need, desperately need Congress to assert its authority in this dramatic and overt way, which will make it harder, at least for them to back down because I assume they are the ones who will back down. That's always what Who's happens. Back Congress, Congress, except for the church committee hearings after Watergate, where there was this sense of real public, you know, turmoil and dismay over the overreaching of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI and the Nixon administration. That is the one moment where Congress and also truly there is, asserted. There's six mem- months left because yes. Once the Republicans take the Senate this in, will be over. in November 2014, this is going to be over. And right? already well, the senators on the committee are not – only Lindsey Graham has been supporting Feinstein, right? Uh, well, there's an interesting split yeah. that because Daryl Issa and Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and a couple of others have been supported. But, but Chambliss, Chambliss is, not, is the ranking member, right. although who's leaving, but who's the ranking member has been kind of like, well, it's all murky. We don't know. So it'll be an interesting split along those kind of national security lines and, and civil liberties lines that we've been 
poking Although it's at weird, this. I mean, because usually senators are so keen on protecting senatorial privilege. Well, they're why, also... Why, why they would not, they ever defend would they, the CIA? No, why would they ever just defend well, the CIA? No, but they're not. Congress always loses these battles because Congress is this fractious, cacophonous body that is not good at having a real, in this moment, a united front. And the to take on the CIA is to take on this agency that is supposed to be protecting American soil. It starts to all the patriotism, militaristic drumbeats start to roll and Congress usually backs off. But let's say, Emily, that Congress doesn't back off. What is the next step in this? Well, I mean, the Justice Department has to decide which, if any, of these criminal cases to bring. Presumably, they will want to have nothing to do with any of it. And then the question is, is there some way that either Feinstein or the CIA, more likely Feinstein, could dragoon the courts into getting involved? And if she felt like the CIA had blocked her access, she couldn't get what she needed, I suppose that she'd figure out some way to challenge the agency in court. That seems so unlikely to me. Also, there are a lot of different things to to work out here. So there's the question of, did you snoop in my computers? That's one big question. But the other is, what's going to, is the original Panetta review going to be released to Congress? Right. And that's or the most is someone going to leak it? Well, exactly. Is, is somebody going to leak it? Then what happens to the 6,200 page? Because they right. were Do trying we ever to find to a way. Do we ever get to see it? Do we ever get to see that? And back to David's point about the Republicans taking over Congress. And if why they can't take over... she just release that on her own? I mean, I know that there's this tradition of deference, but why can't she? I guess it's all classified. That's the yeah, reason. Yeah. I think the executive branch can classify stuff on its own, and then she has to abide by that. If you're a senator, can't you? do you have to abide by that? You Yeah. Remember all those times where they're like, we'll let you into the the room, but you can't bring know, your but, staffers. But is yeah. that? But is it? Are you legal? I know you're. Yeah. Bound what would you happen? Yes, are you if it's classified. Bound? Yes, that's what stopped Ron legis- Wyden and Mark Udall from releasing everything about the NSA and the. By no, the way, no. Udall has put a hold on the president's nomination for, to be counsel of the CIA, and this is fantastic. I mean, so Udall's in a race, right? He's got a real race now, and so it's just great. But back to your point, Emily. I mean, some people have said that Diane Feinstein is all of those things that you've said. And the only reason she's angry now is because her prerogatives have been bruised. Yes. I think you could also make a second, or you can make many cases, but another case one could make is that in order for her to take the posture she has on the NSA and all the other things, relies on her being able to say, we have a robust exactly. oversight exactly. process. And, if, yes. and And so she's got some egg on her face in that regard, too. Having said that, when you look at what these investigators did over years and years and years in a windowless room, painstakingly going through these these documents, it says, one, you feel like they're doing oversight in a like 300 baud modem age. I mean, it takes so long yeah. that it suggests oversight is just can't catch up with what the NSA is doing. Yeah, but no it also makes you feel... Era yeah, conduct. Right. This is about. 10 years ago this yes. was going on. But on the second hand, you think there are people who are doing everything they can, including sneaking documents out of the CIA to try to get to yes. Yes. But if we don't get that 6200 document released, if the public can't have a real conversation about what's in it and about the Panetta review and about the CIA's rebuttal, then it's all kind of for naught. Yeah, that's I think that's right. Do you I'm totally with you, John, about this Feinstein question where people are saying, oh, you know, she only cares when it's her prerogatives. But I think it is legitimate for her to support what the NSA is doing and still to be upset about this. Yeah, I think I it's think, fine because it, because it's, this is foundational. If it, yeah, if, if, except if, that the problem she's having here give the lie to all of her reassurances before because these same kinks were in the system all along. It's just that this has blown up in this particularly antagonistic way. And frankly, you know, you could argue, I don't have the evidence for this, but I'll say it anyway. The reason the CIA is being so bellicose here is that they've been given so much rope over the years and they're emboldened to, you know, go so far as to vanish documents from computers and then charge the very Senate staffers with having violated criminal law. Let us hear from our sponsor this week. We are sponsored this week by our friends at audible.com. Always glad to be sponsored by Audible, our dear friends. They are the leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet. They have more than 150,000 titles, all sorts, all kinds of wonderful books, bestsellers, of course, classics, new books, old books, any subject area you care about. They've got something great. And we have been collecting recommendations from you over on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest, and on email, GabFestDisplate.com, and do we have a, a listener recommendation this week, Emily? We do. It's one that I am eager to listen to myself. It's from Glenn Shepard, and he oh, is recommending— Our dear friend Glenn Shepard. I know, exactly. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Glenn. He's recommending The Tin Princess by Philip Pullman. Philip Pullman is, of course, the author of the trilogy His Dark Materials, which includes The Golden Compass— 
probably my favorite book ever. And The Tin Princess is the finale to a different series called Ruby in the Smoke that I somehow have never read or listened to. But if it's anything like his dark materials, it's wonderful. And Glenn says that there's an amazing narrator for this audible read who creates multiple unique voices and accents. That is awesome. And this reminds me, I'm going to reread The Golden Compass. That's my task for this Good week. Good goal. Yeah, for what? Speak. For the next 10 minutes? Yeah. It takes uh-huh. about 10 minutes to read it because it is so mesmerizing. Shoot me now. It does not take 10 it minutes does. to read anything unless you're well, you. Well, no, that book is just, that book is is one, I don't, listen, we've talked enough about my reading habits, but as a read, I've it's rarely very read anything that I've read so, so quickly. How do, you, how do you read without checking your email? Like, I get about three pages and I'm like... I just have this twitch and I have to go check my email. And that's then what ruins it, my ability to Even sit in and read. bed at in night? In bed? Leave your device downstairs. That's know, the rule in my house. The people sleep upstairs. The device but sleep it's my downstairs. But cl- yeah, it's my alarm clock. Get another alarm <laughs> clock. Separate <laughs> But yourself. also a lot of stuff I'm reading, I'm then tweeting about. So then, then I'm not saying this is normal behavior by any It's means. normal. It just doesn't necessarily make it the healthiest. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so if you sign up with Audible... As a new member and use our promo code, you can get a free book when you do that. You can also get a subscription to the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So you can get the Philip Pullman book or any other one of those great Audible titles if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash GabFest. Republican David Jolly, a well-named Washington lobbyist, won the special election in Florida's 13th congressional district this week to replace Bill Young, a longtime Republican congressman who died Jolly beat Alex Sink, who is a heavily favored Democrat in a district that was it was a kind of reddish district that's tending. It's moving more Democratic. But Sink was a much more well-known politician. And Jolly won with a diet of Obamacare, Obamacare, Obamacare. There was the usual low turnout special election. But Sink sank. And she was unable to make any hay out of the fact that Jolly was a Washington lobbyist. You wouldn't have thought that that would be a profession that would help you win election these days. But Jolly will come back to Washington and lobby from the inside now. So, John, is this as disastrous an omen for the November general election? No, not the November general election, excuse me, the November off-year congressional election, election, as it would appear to be, for Democrats? It's, 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 well, I think for Democrats, Democrats had a tough landscape in November. And what they were hoping at least to do is find out how to pick the lock in this race in a way that might be useful in other races so that they could overcome the bad landscape, which is unpopular president, anemic economy, the Affordable Care Act energizes the other team's base, and the demographics of off-year elections tend to be older and whiter, and that helps Republicans. So they didn't find the way to pick that lock. Now, special elections are not predictive of really anything. Um, So in 2010, Mark Kritz won in Pennsylvania in a special election and everybody thought, everybody thought, oh, well, that's great news for the Democrats. And then the Democrats got walloped in 2010. In in 06 and 05, some Republicans won and people thought, oh, that's that's good. It's not going to be a big trouncing for the Republicans. And they were swamped in in 06. So having said all of that, if you've got the tide going against you, you want to try and find something to help you fight that tide. And they didn't find it in, uh, in Florida. And they were doing some tests on things like uh, minimum wage. We talked about this in the show last week. Was minimum wage a way to turn out more voters from the Democratic side to deal with their turnout problem? And they didn't find that to be the case. Did they have a good rebuttal on the Affordable Care Act that would allow them not just to beat back, not just to fight it to a draw, but in a way stick it to the Republican and say, you want to take us back to this world of uh, this Wild West of insurance policies where you're not covered if you have a pre-existing condition and so forth and so on. And they weren't able to find a way to weaponize that. So that's not great. And it just means that, you know, what we knew going into the race is still true. Tough landscape for Democrats. Every candidate on there, you know, is uh, they got to fight for themselves. Emily, one of the interesting points that was made in, in some of the commentary about this election was Democrats need to find a way to to make a case for Obamacare and to say, look, this things have changed, things have gotten better. But one of the problems is that it's Obamacare, even though it's hasn't in place. even started well, yet. Hasn't practically. It's sort of started, but that a lot of the people who are your eligible voters are not eligible for Obamacare. That because a lot of these red states haven't expanded Medicaid, Medicaid and therefore these people aren't eligible for subsidies that would help them actually afford this care. And yeah, so, it's the perfect and so it doesn't right? seem like. Even if Obamacare is in place, the website is working, blah, 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 
your potential voters may not be benefiting from it at all and may feel like I've been left out again. Right. This is the political genius behind the Republicans' resistance of the Medicaid expansion, right? I mean, you can argue that there are these principled libertarian reasons to resist the expansion of Medicaid. But, oh, there just happens to be the side benefit that the voters who would then be likely to vote Democratic are not getting the benefit of the program. I do wonder, though, that as Obamacare, if it works, starts to shed the healthcare.gov taint, right? I mean, if the administration gets closer to its target numbers for sign up in the state and federal run exchanges, if people do start to see benefits from all kinds of facets of the program, if this is just going to change. And then the question is, well, how long does that take? Because, you know, you can invoke the bad shaky beginning of Medicare as another kind of example of this. But I don't know the politics well enough to know, you know, was it like four or six years out in the Medicare wilderness before? I don't. I also have the suspicion that even if Obamacare is working really well, that Democrats Vote actually aren't going to get the benefits that people just sort of feel like, oh, yeah, I've got it. Right. I've got Yeah, of course, and, it's mine by right. Well, you could yeah. take it and, away, though, as a Republican weapon, I suppose. You would neutralize but, it, even if it doesn't create lifetime loyalists out right. of the beneficiaries. And that's you can do the, the best you can hope for is to neutralize it. And that is probably not even possible because the people you have to neutralize it with are two constituencies you have the least currency with. One is diehard Republicans who, are, who hate it, and that's what's incenting them to vote. So you're not going to convince them. And then the other people who are maybe middle of the road who have their own insurance and are still worried that this thing is going to turn out differently than than they were promised. And as a result, it's going to hit hit them. And the program doing well isn't going to, it's going to take a long time for it to do well to allay that set of fears. So what's the lesson here? I mean, does this mean that Obamacare was fundamentally flawed by not going for a single payer system? That essentially the original sin is that it's stuck with employer-based health care? Or does it mean that there is just no way to have a targeted social benefit that has real electoral payoff? Because it benefits poor people, essentially, who either don't vote in as high measures or aren't going to make the connections that, you know, the Democrats want them to make. It just feels there feels like a thankless aspect of all of this. Well, it's it is. It's a great question. Where do you put the needle down to pinpoint? I mean, Alec McGillis in The New Republic makes the case we were just talking about on Medicare, Medicaid, excuse me. He says a million people in Florida would be on Medicaid now as a part of the Affordable Care Act rollout that aren't because of Florida's um, not participating. So if Sink lost by 3,400 votes, you know, you can imagine that maybe out of that million, some 3,400 might have turned out uh, for Sink. Who knows? But that's one place you can put the marker. The other, a single payer would never have passed. Um, I know, I know. I'm not saying that there was another better option on the table that got rejected. I just have this incredible sense of frustration about Obamacare that it's going to do some good. I still have faith and hope, but it may be not enough good to really pay back for all the political cost. And that just seems like it's it is wrong and a bad lesson in terms of how policymakers think about dispensing social benefits to people who are vulnerable or need them. I think one thing we should just note is that when you look at this district, which had a plus one partisan voting index Republican, so that means it was basically an even split, but just a tiny bit more Republican. The Senate seats in which vulnerable Democrats are fighting for their lives have partisan voting indexes that are far worse, far more Republican. And so they have reason to be nervous, except that they were already plenty nervous before this. So I'm not sure it adds any incremental, you know, teeth chattering. But the important point is, if Republicans take over the Senate, they will have the Senate and the House and health care will be ready for them to go after. And that'll be really fascinating. But they can't repeal it. Well, they won't override the president, but they will make it an attempt they will have to put legislation forward. They will have to offer, as opposed to just... No, they don't have to offer they anything. Offer they just repeal, repeal it, and then repeal. they uh, yammer on and, uh, in their own. No, 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 I don't think so. What, what you've seen already, in even in this election, is that the repeal message for Republicans, they've moved away from it and moved to replace. Because the problem for Republicans is you can't be for nothing for a huge, long, long period of time, <laughs> which they had now have been. I mean, the, the notion they voted almost 50 times, or I think it now may be 50, to repeal it only, it does start to cut when you're trying to make the case that you're a national governing party. When you're in actual control of both houses, repeal won't do it. You've got to replace. And then the question is, what will they replace it with? And then what will happen with a president still there? I mean, it will be 
it will be fascinating to watch should it should well it they take away the individual mandate and have some unrealistic idea that the insurers will still continue to cover people with pre-existing conditions right, right. Well, i mean that's the compromise they've come up with so far they've just never explained how it actually is going to work well insurers will be required to cover people with yeah but they'll, the risk pool will completely fall apart fall because apart. there'll be no individual mandates yes. it's it's going to be great it'll be awesome it's going to will Something Magic will it will, it will heighten wave. the contradictions, and then yeah. there will be single pair. <laughs> in Let our us, lifetime, single pair so? in our lifetime? No, no. <laughs> not, not not in this country. No, I guess not. So, if you think about civil rights, right? If you think about race in America, the positions the parties have taken on race have actually endured and had meaningful political impact for fifty years, right? Could you say the same for the social benefits that? people still credit the Democrats with Social Security and Medicare, and they feel warmly towards Democrats because of that? Well, people do still say that they trust Democrats to have their best interests at heart in a higher number than Republicans. And maybe that so dates maybe all the way back to the New Deal. rosy glow. Well, and the, the polling yeah. here showed they trusted Sink over Jolly on, the, on yeah. fixing the Affordable they just Care Act. Care. It's just, I mean, and that's why we shouldn't put too much weight on the Affordable Care Act. I mean, it, there were other reasons Republicans turned out. There were other... Um, and she was no great candidate. No, she was no. Neither say. one of them were great candidates. But yeah, you're but right. He was, she was, he's a he Washington, was a Washington lobbyist. lobbyist. Right. He's a lobbyist who's yeah. He he was a terrible candidate too. It was kind of two bad candidates against each other. Let's go on to our next topic. President Obama killed it on Between Two Ferns. Zach Galifianakis's mock talk show, the show in which Galifianakis plays a talk show host who's an aggressive moron. Oaf allowed Obama a chance to highlight healthcare.gov, presumably to an audience of younger people that the administration really needs, wants, and needs to sign up for Obamacare. Obama was kind of antagonistic. He was funny. He was deadpan, mocking, cool. Uh, A little mean. Mean. And it seemed to have worked in the sense that Obamacare or the healthcare.gov has seen an increase in web traffic in the days since the video clip was shown. Online, it was really funny. I thought. Did you guys agree that? Yeah, it was, really funny? It was a good between two ferns episode, right? Which is what the director and Zach Galifianakis, however you say his name, kept insisting that they were really after. I don't know how they could have not aired the tape if it mm-hmm. had sucked, but it worked. As the although other. by the but although the between two ferns, some of them are so. I mean, the one with Charlize Theron, Theron, that special kind of comedy where they they played it. It's just fantastic. And the president was good in his version. But if you've never seen Between Two Ferns, you should go watch some of them. The, like, subtle bits of human behavior that they nail so perfectly. You can't – it takes you 45 minutes just to explain what little thing they they have been able to capture. But you know it when you see it. Um, So, Emily, Bill O'Reilly, a noted American political commentator, said this was a disgrace that Abraham Lincoln would never have done this. Abraham Lincoln is rolling over in his grave. The – it has disgraced the office of the presidency. It's undignified. Is it? I am all for less dignity, I suppose. I mean, in general, I'm not so interested in pomp and circumstance, and I always want to bring people down to earth. So I have a predilection in favor of this. But I think, and I, this is not my original idea, the Abraham Lincoln historical example, I think, is wrong because Lincoln was actually a great communicator. And he would have, if he was alive now, he'd be picking up on whatever is the best way to reach these young hipsters who are not signing up for health insurance. Let's go and find them. You know, when you think about it that way, it seems pretty genius. It seems like something any Repub- any president could do. And, you know, there is a tradition of presidents going on, what, Saturday Night Live, some of these other shows. Obama's been on late night before, and he's not the first one. And usually it's just not as good. Right. They go on John Stewart and they kind of tank because they're not really willing to play the game. Right. What worked about this so well was that Obama had obviously watched the show and got into the spirit of it. I don't think – has a president ever gone – a sitting president ever gone on That's Saturday enough. Night Live or on Just candidates Stewart. maybe? Yeah, I think yeah. Clinton went on as a candidate on Arsenio and, and Sarah Palin went on uh, Saturday Night Live. Right. I think Obama went Obama on as a candidate. Obama did the Daily Show. Wasn't he, was he a was candidate? He, I feel like he was the pre- maybe he was the candidate and the president. It doesn't seem that. Um, but, or anyone did Bush. I doubt Bush ever did any of that stuff. No, no, but then you have the question of then there's an interesting format question here. So you know, in the White House correspondence dinner, the president made a joke about not finding WMD. Now, in that context, President Bush, President Bush, yeah. So in that context, joking about the pretext for a war 
seems like to not be that funny. <laughs> and yet here you have President Obama not making any jokes that are it's just appearing on the show. So Right. It was less edgy in terms of content. It's yeah. merely the form that makes it seem like, oh, he's taking this big stride. Well, he was joking. I mean, it dignity. was like the, the whole thing of like, this want to be the last president you ever interview or it's like making a third But it wasn't a joke with where the underneath it is something that's like so deadly serious. Right. You know, that was, uh, you know, let me ask well, you didn't this. It, I mean, underneath it was that we've botched our healthcare.gov rollout. That's pretty deadly serious. Yeah, there was some serious content, but it wasn't yeah, the same as, as like war, yeah. going to war and people dying. Here's a question I wondered. So Stephen Colbert set the modern tradition of speaking truth to power when at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, he made, you know, jokes about the president who was sitting inches away from him. God bless him. So there were some people who were saying that's what, you know, comedians are supposed to make people in power feel uncomfortable. This was suggested by Galifianakis. This was the handmaid, being the handmaiden of the administration. Do you, either of you, find that problematic? So not from the president's side, but from but the, the, the comedian the comedian's was side. essentially too in on the joke. I mean, I don't think that Galifianakis was going after Obama here at all. Yeah. I think you're right. And he, he has said, or the director has said, you know, we're all for people signing up for health insurance. I do think, though, that you know, essentially saying to the president, your people, you completely screwed up this website is not what you're not. Everyone knows that. But to say it to the president's face on camera is you don't give him any credit for that. That's no, like, no, no, not at all. And I would say here's what I would say. I actually want to blame the president here because I don't think it's up to Galifianakis. Not every comedian, in every situation has to speak truth to power. That is not necessarily his job. I think it's fine when one wants to do it, and it's great that Colbert did it at that occasion, but I don't think everyone has to do it every moment. What I object to is that the White House does this. White House sits for this interview, gets all the script. White House never does any interviews yeah. with real journalists. You know, once in a blue moon, they they submit to something. You know, Obama spoke to O'Reilly at the Super Bowl. That was okay. Clearly but basically, the entire time. You know, basically, they never let actual journalists cross-examine the president. And... Well, so and the, when the they do, it's managing the David Remnick, Michael Lewis model we've talked about with that it's much more sort of armchair and then you have all this quote approval. Yeah, and it's that not TV. That's it. also not, not TV live. direct or, right. you know, I credit the Obama people as being opportunistic and looking for a good opportunity. But I, I sort of deplore the fact that they spend his time on this stuff and not actually letting journalists at him. Right. So, it's not either or. It's both. That they should have paired this with some moment where they let some eager conservative reporter ask hard questions. Well, or just a regular. You know, the, I mean, Doesn't they got off the hook on conservative, too, because they can say, oh, well, you know, of course they're going to ask IRS Benghazi and healthcare.gov questions because they're just – so Fair it's easier for them to dismiss that than sitting down – you know, when was I don't know when was the last time he had an interview with, say, the Times or the Post. Yeah, I don't think he's done a Times interview. Years, I think. I really think it's years. The New York Times, the most important news outlet in the world, doesn't talk to them. It's um, ludicrous. I'm Believe trying me, to I'm, think if you're. I can't. I, the one last time I remember is the David Leonard one. Are there? What are the other things that Obama should do in this vein? Would oh, it, you mean on the comedy? On yeah, the, well, would, it depends. Or, I mean, one or, thing or will, will he ru- ruin the brand if he doesn't more than once? Huh. I think he's – I think the brand – I mean his approval rating in the Wall Street Journal poll is as low as it's ever been, 41 percent. It was 48 percent in Bloomberg, so you can debate about which poll you want to believe. But um, I mean his brand, you know, it is where it, How it low is. How can he go? It is where he it is. Well I don't know. I think he can – you know, I think um, – A Parks and Rec guest spot is in his future. And I agree, by the way, with Emily. I mean Lincoln was – the Slate Political Gap Fest, we'd be willing to yeah. we, would, we would have him on. Yeah. <laughs> is that comedy or journalism? Though? I don't, I don't know. know. Uh, I mean, the, the, the thing also is they were talking about how their web traffic went up. We'll see at the end of the month if they actually sign anybody right. up. I mean, uh, they've been so stingy with the numbers and the specificity. So they expected about 40% of their signups. They wanted 40, excuse me, they wanted 40% of their signups to be um, the 18 to 35 year cohort. And I think it turns out it's Close to 30. So they're well below. So they need this. And they're at like four point something million and they're trying to get to seven seven by the end of the month. We'll Um, see. uh, Yeah, because if by the end of the month you don't sign up, then it's – got to wait till November. Can I ask a a totally um, self-involved question relating to this? Which is – so as I was watching Obama, I had this sense like, you know, he is funny 
towards Galifianakis and the way I imagine myself to behave in that same situation. It's like kind of slightly bullying, yeah, mocking, you could, you could do a little a cool, superior attitude. And and I thought, God, this is so. So first, I thought this is quite familiar to me. I feel like this is how I would behave. Not I wouldn't be. And as you funny thought, as huh, they should have me as their. No, next. and then I thought, like, God, what an asshole! I had this reaction, like. In the same way, when I when you watched Bush back in the day, John, I mean, you're a, you're a scholar of this. That Bush's He's, bullying yeah. was very unpleasant, but obviously he thought it was funny, and there's certain set of people who thought it was funny. Yeah, and do other people react to Obama like, to "Oh, what a jerk"? I well, talked I, to a regular person, someone outside of our world. Was it a cab driver? No, it was not a cab driver, <laughs> but it was someone who's not in the media world at all, and she thought Obama was genuinely angry. So I think that there was an actual edge of hostility there. But that's part of the. Pl- I mean, as someone uh, who yes. does this, that's part of the play and you Absolutely. don't you assume that other people don't mean it in fact the, the, on the show and me and you in particular Emily have that, a little bit of that where there's an edge of hostility which is not actually hostile it's just like except sometimes hostile. our listeners feel like you yeah. are in fact attacking me and right. then you have to back right. off but is it but do is it genuinely, is it genuinely obnoxious? obnoxious or I, not well I, when I saw him I thought boy because there were a couple of things he did that were um, really good and I thought boy he's a good actor and then I thought maybe not acting you know, President Bush's, his humor very often came at somebody else's expense in the private moments. And there was, I th- I kind of thought, this is not unfamiliar territory for him to play that very tough kind of humor. Um, either that or he's a, he's got a, another career after he's done doing web. But, so do you videos. think that people <laughs> watching it think that it's funny? I mean, obviously lots of people are going to have different reactions. Do they think that's funny or do they think... Gosh, our president is really kind of a condescending superior jerk. Right. I think if they know I think the audience for Between Two Ferns thinks it's funny. Right. And they get don't they get haven't they been conditioned by like Colbert and others to see the fake interview where a guy's in character being obtuse, being so kind of ignorant that you get it. That and then then you're like, oh okay. This is all a put on. Like, if you've never seen Two Ferns, you recognize, nevertheless, that kind of cringe humor. Have right. We I think that's culturally... right. My kids, for example, watched it, and I asked them if they thought Obama was angry, and they were like, no, he was just, you know, he was supposed to be funny. Were those the regular people you were talking about? No, they were not. But my kids <laughs> watch a lot of Colbert and John Stewart. So they're conditioned to this kind of brand of cringe, fake interview humor. All right. Let's move on to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you're prepping for your Between Two Ferns appearance, what are you going to be chattering about? I was writing today about a really interesting lawsuit in New Jersey where a father sued to get access to the birth of his child in the delivery room. So he'd conceived a child with a woman. They got engaged. They broke up. She wasn't really talking to him. He really wanted to be there present for the child's birth, and she said no, and so a lawsuit arose out of this. There are other parts of the lawsuit. He also wanted his name on the birth certificate, which seems more reasonable, and he then in the end, after he lost the suit, his lawyer said all along he really just wanted to see the baby after the baby was born. But this suit did prompt a judge to reach this question of can a father demand access to the delivery room if the mother doesn't want him there? And, you know, if fatherhood and motherhood are treated on completely equal legal footing, then the answer could be yes. But this judge ruled against the father, which I think in the end has to be the answer because we just are dealing with the biological fact of pregnancy here. And when you're talking about a fetus that cannot be separated from its mother, just cannot, you have to take into account the mother's well-being here. When do you think the moment of the father's right to visit that baby began? Right after the baby's born. But like in the in the in delivery the room seconds? afterwards? No, I think that there the mother gets her privacy in the delivery room. That actually her privacy rights as a patient still trump. And but once the baby goes, you know, after like whatever, ten minutes, an hour, and the baby is going off to be taken care of by the nurses, yeah, the father should be there right away to get to bond with his newborn. So you mentioned something en passant there, which I didn't realize when you mentioned this to me earlier, which was he's also suing to get his name on the birth certificate. Are you telling me that there's a reasonable case to say he should not have his name on the birth certificate? Yes. I mean, I don't really agree with this one. But yes, I think you could argue that mothers get to make that call. I'm sure that, that is, some feminists what? would make that argument. Well, that... Wh- right. Wait, I'm trying who's to the, see what I mean, what he's the, the father. He is the biological <laughs> right, father of the child. It seem like an accurate fact. I'm not... I'm, you know what? Whether there's an argument or not, I, I'm with you on that one. I don't really... And in fact, I think that the other interesting one, which I think maybe we could divide over, was whether she had to give him notice of when 
the baby was due. He was she says that she was willing to tell him. But in the facts in the lawsuit, he says, I was trying to find out when this was going to happen and she wouldn't tell me. And the judge ruled in her favor on that one. And that's based on a Supreme Court ruling from Planned Parenthood versus Casey over abortion and the idea of do women have to tell the fathers of their children if they're aborting their babies? And the Supreme Court said, no, that just goes too far toward infringing and violating women's rights to self-determination and privacy and whatever else. But there's something weird about the idea that you wouldn't be able to find out when your child was about to be born, right? That is... This it's is, upsetting. These are some fun cases. If she makes a statement en passant, whose pawn does she get, mine or yours? She made the statement en passant. She, uh, I guess it would have been mine. Because, right, she because was talking I, to you. Are you talking about chess? That's yeah. like against the rules of the gap. That's because I don't understand. John, check. <laughs> uh, so... My uh, chatter t- this week is about the grisly story of Kitty uh, Genovese. Fifty years ago today, at 3 o'clock in the morning, was um, stabbed in Queens, New York. And this became the big, huge viral moment of its day because when she was stabbed, the New York Times reported that 38 people had witnessed the stabbing and done nothing. And... It became a worldwide phenomenon that this was America, this was New York, and that Carl Ross, who was one of the people who saw this happening, had a famous quote in which when he was interviewed, he said, I didn't want to get involved. And the Russians made a big deal out of this as being symbol of the American system in which, you know, this grave, horrible thing can happen. 38 people can hear it and do nothing. So there is now a book out by Kevin Cook about this murder. Some fascinating parts of it that are really interesting in the reporting. First of all, it wasn't 38 people who saw the stabbing. And the story doesn't doesn't come out for two weeks. But then um, Abe Rosenthal is the city editor of the New York Times. He's having lunch with the police commissioner who doesn't want to talk about something. And so says, did you hear about that thing that happened in Queens? 38 people heard it and nothing happened. So Rosenthal assigns it. And the New York Times writes a lead that says 38 people witnessed it and did nothing. It was totally wrong. It was totally. only a few people. Lots of people kind of sort of heard what happened, but they weren't sure what they were hearing. Well, there were multiple attacks, according to Cook. So there's the first attack, but then she gets free because somebody yells out of their window at the assailant. at Winston Mosley, and he runs away. And some people they see her. She was okay. She thought she was okay. He then attacks her a second time. But there were two guys who are horrible. And one is the Carl Ross, who was apparently a heavy drinker, who, when she's being attacked right before she dies, opens his door and sees it and then closes his door. And the other was this guy aptly named Joseph Fink, who saw it happening and said to the police, I saw it and I was going to go get my baseball bat, but I took a nap instead. It's just sort of extraordinary. But then another fact is, and the reason the police chief would say it was 38 people doing nothing, is that somebody did make the call. And apparently, according to Cook, there was no 911. So you didn't just know how to call your cops. You had to go to the Yellow Pages and get your local precinct number. And sometimes when you would call, they would say, you know, if you don't like your neighborhood, move. That they weren't, you know, the sort of Johnny on the spots that they then would be when 911 was implemented in the late 60s. So somebody did make the call and the cops just never showed. They just blew it off. So, you know what? This story is really about two men not responding as they should have and the cops. It's about how people didn't care about women getting beaten up and being the victim of sexual assault. Like That's what it's indicative of. And that was much more typical in that era. The final point is that Mosley is still alive. Oldest prisoner in the New York penal system. How old is um, he? 78 years old. Um, 78 years old is the oldest prisoner in New York? Yeah. Wow. I guess... Uh, That's weird. Um, I would have thought that would be much older. <laughs> And I should say it's not just the New York Times that perpetrated this story. Life magazine did a big story on this. Again, 38 people. Also turns out it was 49 people who were interviewed. So like the number 38 was just totally out of the blue. There's no there's no way you could sort of get it wrong. 49 minus 11. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I mean, I guess the extent to which this also this was a I'm trying to think of something like this in our age. I mean, the OJ, maybe the OJ trial, a crime that is so definitional of a Rodney period. King. Yeah, yeah Rodney probably King. Rodney King. Or um, ours, yeah. And Trayvon uh, Martin more recently. Trayvon Martin is, yeah. Trayvon Martin, definitely. My chatter is not nearly as good as yours. I'll do it really quickly. I, I was having dinner last night with someone who has a house in Provincetown, and he was telling me that something I didn't know, which is that there's a lovely little battle that goes on between Provincetown and Plymouth about the pilgrims because 
Who knew? The pilgrims landed in Provincetown first. It wasn't Plymouth Rock. They came to Provincetown. Provincetown just blew it because there was no rock there? Yeah, there was no rock. They spent five weeks there. Only smooth jazz. They wrote wrote the Mayflower Compact in Provincetown Harbor, but then they didn't stay. And then they went on to Plymouth. And Provincetown, I think, ever since has been feeling envy. They've built a 250-foot-tall monument in Provincetown to the Pilgrims, the Pilgrim Monument. It's so sad, right? Trying to retrospectively claim your incredibly important moment in history, but somehow it's passed you by. I mean, you can see why they wouldn't stay there. It's it's right on the end. It's like at the end of the continent. What's so great about Plymouth? Well, Plymouth is part of the continent. It's the main continent. You know, there's more land. Right. You're not on the beach. You're not as buffeted by... They all died there, though, too. I mean, it was also ravaged by disease, wasn't it? They had a really hard winter in Plymouth as well. Yeah, I feel they, certain they of passed, this. They, they survived to, uh, to, to leave us. You're, you're a, Some Dickerson's are possibly... Uh, no, no, we weren't a part of the Massachusetts. We were Mayflower. the Virginia. You were Virginia. Were you really? Are there Dickerson's uh, Well, no, no, no. I mean, we, to the extent we were anywhere, it was through the south, not through the north. How I don't far know back? When, you don't know? I, you know, there are some members of the family who will claim attachment and lineage to basically any important figure in American history you'd like to mm. choose. I don't really know how far we really actually Genealogy experts out there, find us the president to whom John Dickerson is close, most closely related. I'd like to know the answer. And find us the peddler to whom you and I are you most closely the, related. My great-grandfather. <laughs> my sister did a lot of this work, but there was a fire in the records, the census records place, so there's some, so there's some gappage. Oh, so there say. you go. Then my yeah, right. exactly. what, let's get, I want to get my president, I'm going to say that Dickerson is most closely related to Thomas Jefferson, if it's Virginia. No, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to go with the Harrisons. I'm going to say Harrison, the, the Harrison family. Yeah, yeah, I don't know why. Just, Are they from the right region? No, I don't think so. <laughs> why did you <laughs> name them? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> All right, our credits. I just didn't. I was. I had a really busy week, but someone in the Gabfest audience constellation decided to take it upon himself. Daniel Westreich decided to take it upon himself to do credits for us. So uh, I'm going to do the credits from Daniel Westreich, and it is the form of a Shakespearean sonnet. Hail Muse, please visit us at Slate.com. Our show page, slash Gabfest, is there to stay, including evidence of our aplomb and links to what we talked about today. Our contact information is easily found online, our email, and our Facebook page, where listeners flock and bat the issues round, where you can leave a comment in a rage. Or if you're in a better mood, in praise, check Twitter at Slate Gabfest, as you know. Please subscribe in iTunes. Help us raise our profile with a comment on the show. So thanks to Bowers, Wolo, Cohen, Lots, for Emily and John. I'm David Potts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.